So I wanted to talk a little bit about the fourth foundation. Yeah, so we've heard about the first three foundations, establishments, I should use the word that I claim I favored, the establishments as an exploration of various aspects of our body and our mind. You know, that's what they amount to, getting more and more subtle as they go through. Um, so this is about you know, how, how to establish mindfulness. I want to talk also about this fourth foundation. And to do that, I want to bring in one more dimension of this word sati, mindfulness. It actually uh, has also the dimension of memory, another meaning in in Pali, the word sati actually means memory. Uh, came to be used as mindfulness, um, but it's intimately related to memory. So, for example, here's a quote: "Mindfulness is also one of the five faculties." That's another list, and in a, a sutta that defines them, it defines mindfulness this way: "Herein, a noble disciple, that's us. Herein, a noble disciple is mindful and is endowed with the highest prudence in mindfulness." He is one who remembers and recollects even what was done and said long ago. This monks is called the faculty of mindfulness. That's pretty interesting. So don't worry, you're not being asked to, you know, I know we're all getting older and <laughs> the uh, memory function is maybe not as strong as it used to be. But it's, um, I think the point being made here, the part that I find kind of juicy about this is that Mindfulness is not really just being in the present moment. You know, we're told again and again, be in the present moment. Don't let your mind go wandering. Be here. I even said that in the first half, right? The body's always here. So there is, I mean, there is this element of mindfulness, of being in the present moment, being uh, aware of the flow right now. But there's also this reflective aspect to it. Um, and this is, I think, where the real wisdom comes in. We do have to know what went on before in order to understand how things are evolving, how things are coming about, what is causing what. Uh, you can't become free just by having moment-to-moment -moment awareness with no reflection about any of it. Let's say that again. You can't become free just by having moment-to-moment -moment awareness with no reflection about it. That's not what it's about. I would say animals are pretty much in the present moment. You ever watched your dog? They don't sit there and go off. Well, sometimes they go off into daydreams, but um, I think. I can't really tell. But as far as I can tell, animals are pretty much about this moment. Children, you know, young children, pretty much about this moment. That's not freedom, though. That's We're not trying to... Some people think that mindfulness is about returning to some childlike state where we're all so amazing and wide-eyed about the world. There's no wisdom in that. There's no wisdom in that. That's not what we're doing. Um, my teacher used to, when he had young children, he used to get frustrated with his children because he'd be trying to get them out to the car and they're stopping and looking at the bug on the sidewalk and they're like, oh, look at that. You know, they're right there in the present moment. He's going, come on, we've got 10 minutes to get to school. You know, it's like not aware of the context, <laughs> right? So mindfulness does actually include some element of that, of knowing what you're doing, how it's flowing, how you're getting from here to there in a way that's um, uh, skillful. <laughs> um, not getting sucked into the bug on the sidewalk if it's not the moment for that. So... Um, 
yeah, I don't want to belabor that too much. But the fourth establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness of the dhammas, uh, includes more than just knowing in this moment what's happening. So what are dhammas? This word has a lot of meanings. That's why it's often left untranslated. Um, in this case, uh, if in your reading uh, or in the, I can't remember if it's in the recorded, the recorded Dharma talk or if it's in the essay that Gil wrote for this month, but he uses the word mental processes, which is pretty good. So things, the mind is a process, things are flowing, the body and the mind are processes. Um, so in this establishment, we start to look at the processes and conditions that are playing out in our minds. That's what it means. So beyond just noticing individual experiences. So we start seeing how things connect. We start seeing the interplay, uh, the causes and conditions, and the impermanence. <laughs> so that's, um, these are keys actually to getting free. So in this fourth foundation, Margaret, you've already got your hand up. Yeah, I've also seen, um, I'm having a noun failure, I'm sorry. That's okay, it's all verbs anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Manifestation uh-huh. being used in this uh, mindfulness of, do- of, of that, That's reasonable. Yeah, that's reasonable reasonable translation. Yeah, I wouldn't have said that, but, uh-huh. Well, maybe I'll talk, maybe it'll come through as I talk, but manifestation, um, yeah, I can see where that comes from. There's another place in the discourses where we're asked to understand yata bhuta jnana dasana, mindfulness of how things, it doesn't really mean how things are, that's a mistranslation, bhuta, um, it has to do with how things are coming to be in this moment. So um, how things are becoming, how they're arising, how they're manifesting. And it doesn't actually use, in this case, it doesn't use the word Buddha. Um, it's just mindfulness of dhammas. But I think it's when you when you hear the instructions, which I'll go through a little bit, you see that what it's looking at is how things are coming about. So I think manifesting is a reasonable translation of that. So what we're given in this fourth foundation, if you read the sutta, is we're given several sets of mental qualities, if you will, um, and some instructions for how to approach each set. So there are five sets, actually, in this version of the sutta. Um, One is the hindrances, the five hindrances. Um, I'm not going to try to overwhelm you by naming what all the elements of every one of these five sets but we're learning to see our experience in terms of the categories that the Buddha said are useful. So the five hindrances are the things that get in the way of being present, get in the way of having concentration and, and mindfulness. And what we're said to, instead of worrying about what the five hindrances are, you can read them in here, what we're asked to do with them, the instruction, is that we should notice, first of all, whether that hindrance is present or absent. So one of the hindrances is ill will, for example. So. Is ill will present in my mind at this moment, or is it absent? So for me, it happens to be absent right now. So I can notice, oh, there's no ill will in my mind. Great, that's nice. Um, We're supposed to notice how these things arise. So that would be noticing how does ill will come about in my mind? Like often it comes about when I'm frustrated, for example. Then I have a reaction of, I don't like this. 
I don't like that. This computer is bothering me. I have ill will for my computer when it doesn't do what I want it to do, for example. Um, so how did that come about? Well, my desire, I had desire and it was frustrated. So we start to see the conditions for it. Whereas I don't have ill will generally if I'm sitting watching the sunset on the beach, you know. So we you know, we'll probably see that an unpleasant experience precedes the arising of ill will. So that's a little bit of wisdom right there. We should understand how it's abandoned once it arises. So it's starting to sound like wise effort. How does it arise? How is it abandoned once it arises? So if I have ill will, oops, it happened. How, what, what happens? What can I do to mitigate that in some way? How is it that that goes away? What, what brings it to peace? And how is it prevented? Since it's a hindrance, we don't want it. What conditions prevent it from coming about? Mindfulness, for example, is a great one for preventing the hindrances from coming. So we start to have to know something about our experience. So that's just the hindrance practice. Then there's the practice, I won't go through all these in detail, I promise, the practice of the five aggregates, um, which are other components of experience. So we notice whether a given one is present or absent, it's arising and it's passing away. The sense bases. That's our eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. Six senses are defined. In regard to each of those, we should notice um, how we get stuck, essentially. That's not exactly what it says in the teaching, but you should notice how you get stuck on a given sense. Like, what is it about when I see things and I get hooked into them? What is the quality that lets me get hooked into a sight or a sound? Maybe it's easier to illustrate with a sound. So if you're meditating and there's a noise outside, you can get hooked into that because you want to be meditating and it's loud and you don't like it. So you get angry at your neighbor or angry that you live on a busy street or whatever it is. But what that is, is you've, you've gotten stuck on a sound. And so we notice, oh... Um, when I have in mind that I'm supposed to be meditating and I have a view about that, then I can get stuck on a sound. So and this is not meant to be a lot of like psychological analysis. It's really quite quick. Because remember, mindfulness is also present moment. We're still flowing along. But it's like you look immediately. You know, If I have ill will, what else is here? The cause of it is not in the past. The cause of it is not, oh, my father said this or that when I was four years old, and now every time this happens, I have ill will. Don't worry about the long, distant past. It's really, if this is here, if something is present, its causes must also be present. It's here for a reason. It's here because of immediate conditions. That's what we're supposed to be looking at. Um, That's how we kind of combine this reflective aspect with the present moment aspect. So that's three categories, hindrances, aggregates, sense bases. Then we get into the really positive ones. Speaking of, you asked about positive things. We're supposed to be mindful of the factors of awakening in our life. There are seven factors of awakening, and all of them we have the potential for, and some of them are inherent to the mind. So we're not they may not be raised to the level of factors of awakening yet, but there are some of these that are things we already have, like mindfulness. So we should notice... In this case, in the case of the factors of awakening, we notice their presence or their absence at this moment. Am I mindful or not? I happen to be mindful. Good. That's one of the factors of awakening. We notice it's arising. How does it come about? Because we want it to come about. What supports having that there? And then we notice it's cultivation, so that's or it's maintenance. Um, did, did you notice the reference to all the four efforts in here? So when the things are helpful, beneficial, like the factors of awakening, we should notice... 
uh, their presence, we should notice how they come about, and we should notice how to keep them. You know, what is it that sustains the factors of awakening? And finally, the Four Noble Truths. We should see the operation of each of the Four Noble Truths. Those are the five sets. So, that's the fourth foundation or establishment of mindfulness. You know, what it is that we... Um, to start to see our experience in terms of sets of qualities that the Buddha said are useful. I know it's a different language than we usually think of. We tend to think in terms, maybe if you're, especially if you have training in psychology, you think in terms of emotions and motivations and perceptions and other things that you've been taught in the psychological language. It's not that all that is wrong or not what you should be doing. It's fine. If, I hope you still use that if you're a therapist or something. But the Buddha's just saying, if you want to develop this quality called mindfulness in the way that he was talking about it, really having a deep presence and understanding of what's going on in the flow of our life, it's really helpful to think in terms of these categories. And I found that to be useful. It's okay. I can use multiple categories at different times. It's like different languages. I also have training in science, so I can see the physical world in terms of uh, the periodic table of the elements, or I can see it in terms of the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water. It's fine. So I, I, I encourage you to learn this system as a language, as a way of seeing things, and incorporate it a little bit into your day-to-day -day experience. It really supports the cultivation of mindfulness, if that's of interest to you in your life. So I sometimes um, think about this fourth foundation or establishment as descriptive rather than prescriptive. So um, I told you it in a sort of a prescriptive way. Here's how you ought to see things, or here's the instructions you're supposed to do for each one. But I see it also as the more and more mindful we get, the more and more natural it is that we just see things in, these, in this way, actually. In some ways, the Buddha is kind of describing how it's going to be for you when you have more continuous mindfulness. It's like you'll see the hindrances are what get in the way of mindfulness, so I, I can see those. The aggregates and the sense bases, sorry about that technical term, don't worry about the aggregates. Um, those are like the component, the regular components of experience and how I tend to organize them in terms of self, that's what the aggregates are about, and in terms of likes and dislikes, that's what the sense bases tend to be about. And then the positive things, the things that are helpful for getting free are the factors of awakening and understanding things in terms of the Four Noble Truths. That's just how you see things when you're mindful, is you see where's the suffering and how does it end. That's what the truths tell us about. So, um, it's less work than it sounds like. You know, there's all these different words, but it's, you know, if you approach it as, oh, I have to memorize all this and do this and do this, it's very burdensome. Um, I find it actually kind of delightful to just see how the world is when I'm mindful, and then I go and read the sutta, and I'm like, wow, that's actually how it kind of comes about. <laughs> it's very sort of validating. <laughs> Okay, so let's focus on two areas if I'm to, give, to get a little bit more practical about this. Um, I want to focus on the hindrances and the awakening factors. Um, there's partly because those are kind of the, they kind of balance each other in, the, in other texts, not in this one, it's not so clear, but in, the, in a different book, the Samyutta Nikaya, the um, hindrances and the factors of awakening are kind of counterbalanced. Like as you have less of one, you have more of the other. And it's very clear about how that comes about. So I think they're a good pairing. And then there's a second more kind of geeky reason for that, which is that um, 
there are other versions of this sutta preserved in other traditions besides the Theravadan tradition, and they don't have all the same sets of stuff in them. <laughs> they have different ones. Uh, but the two that are common to all the versions of this sutta are the hindrances and the factors of awakening. So that's interesting. Maybe they're the most important. So... I'll just read one of them so that you get a flavor of what it sounds like, but it's pretty much as I said. Okay, the five hindrances. Now let's do the alignment factors, they're nicer. All right, so a practitioner abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects. That's dharmas, dharmas as dharmas, in terms of the seven, seven enlightenment factors. And how does a meditator abide contemplating dharmas as dharmas in terms of the seven enlightenment factors? Here, there being the mindfulness enlightenment factor in him, a meditator understands there is the mindfulness enlightenment factor in me. Or, there being no mindfulness enlightenment factor in him, he understands there is no mindfulness enlightenment factor in me. And he also understands how there comes to be the arising of the unarisen mindfulness enlightenment factor. Sounds like the four efforts, right? And how the arisen mindfulness enlightenment factor comes to fulfillment by development. And then it repeats that for the other six, which are investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So... It's very, not, again, it's very non-judgmental. It just says know if it's there or not, and then know the qualities that support it. Um, it's very inspiring, I find, that we're not really like trying to do a lot. <laughs> we're trying to notice a lot, which is actually in some ways harder, but it's also just more subtle and more gentle. It's not like we're getting in there and engineering a bunch of stuff. Make sure your mind looks like this at the end of the session. It just says, notice, the magic of mindfulness, which is not really stated in here, but you'll see it experientially as you do it. And I don't know how this works exactly. I mean, that's why I called it magic, is that when you're aware of something that is unskillful or unwholesome, it diminishes it. It's like it melts, sort of like the sun shining on ice. It just melts it. It kind of diminishes it. And when you're aware of something that's beneficial or wholesome, it enhances it. It's a special quality of mindfulness. And that's not the case if you're not mindful. Stuff just arises and passes somewhat, you know, as it does. But if you're mindful, you have this ability to diminish the unwholesome and enhance the wholesome. It's like two for one. It's amazing. So there's sort of nothing bad about, about wholesome mindfulness. I guess I should add that in the early tradition, mindfulness is recognized as there can be unwise mindfulness and wise mindfulness. And this is about establishing wise mindfulness. The later tradition gets a little bit more positive and says that mindfulness is always positive. But um, the early tradition acknowledges that you could have some uh, non-wisdom in there. Uh, I think in my, well, in my understanding, I don't know for sure, they don't ever really define it, but... Um, my experience is that my mindfulness can, my mindfulness, quote unquote, can be uh, tainted with an agenda. So I can think I'm being mindful of the pain in my knee, but what I'm secretly wishing is that by noticing it, it will go away. 
So you have to look. <laughs> so I think that's unwise mindfulness. And it doesn't have the magical effect that I just said. That's only for wise mindfulness. So just some, again, some practical examples for myself. I have done some observation, and speaking of the five hindrance cluster, I've done some observation of anger and ill will in myself. Um, so we're supposed to observe whether it's there or not, how it uh, arises and how it can pass away and how it can be prevented. Um, I've come to see that for me, anger is not a very fundamental experience, actually. It almost always is wrapped up with a bunch of other stuff, and it almost always is coming out of some more basic emotion, actually. Anger is fairly complex. I don't, th I don't think it's very fundamental. And for me, it's, um, there's kind of three things that are most likely to lead to anger. One is confusion, one is hurt, and one is fear. And those three, I think, are all more basic than anger. They tend to produce it along. Anger always comes with a story of some kind. Um, so it's possible to look more deeply at the assumptions that are in place that cause the mind to get confused about something or get hurt by something, and we can kind of trace back. Again, not tracing back to what your elementary school teacher did, but but looking in this moment. You know, what are the what are the underlying factors that are allowing this to to be present? And then on the on the factors of enlightenment side, I've done a lot with tranquility. That's one of my favorite factors of enlightenment. Um, it's uh, I, it happens to be one that's fairly natural for me, although maybe it wasn't right at the beginning. But I discovered it as a resource at some point. So again, what we're supposed to notice, I just read it. We're supposed to notice the presence or absence of that awakening factor, um, what it is that supports it, and what it is that maintains it, you know, what causes it to arise and what causes it to be maintained. So I have found that um, over time I can feel tranquility. It's like a quality of the heart, and it becomes something that I can tap into as a resource. Um, what brings it about, I mean, what, what encourages it, actually my, my love and appreciation of it. I actually really value tranquility. I value when people are tranquil, I think it always... Uh, always contributes to having a more wise and fruitful and connected experience of the world. I know there are people who will dispute this. Uh, tranquility is not the most popular of the awakening factors. Um, there are people who will say that, who, who thrive on action and agitation. For me, it's agitation. They might say action stimulation. Um, they think tranquility is boring, dangerous, uh, possibly suspect in a world that has problems. How can you be tranquil? So it gets wrapped up with other things. Um, but I know that my deep valuing of it as something that I've always seen as beneficial. You can still go out and help the world even if you're tranquil. That contributes greatly to the fact that it's very deeply established in my heart. And if you don't value it as much, it probably won't be as much. Um, I find that conditions for it also include staying present in the body. So you talked about the body. I find that tranquility is greatly supported through the body because the body is such a broad, deep foundation that is connected to the earth. Um, being in the body, very conducive for that particular awakening factor. So all of these investigations that I'm, you know, how did I come to sort of be able to rattle off all those things? Those are, again, investigations that I did in real time. You know, when I was feeling tranquil, I looked. What is it that's there? What is present? How is my mind and body in this moment that I can have this experience? 
I didn't think too much about, you know, my days as a teenager and so forth. Um, so remembering, remembering to be, this memory aspect is kind of about remembering to do these practices, remembering to bring to mind what's in the Satipatthana Sutta, remembering what was said about it, remembering what we read about it, but always looking still in the present moment. It still has that aspect of what are the conditions happening right now. So there's a certain breadth to mindfulness. It's not really, doesn't have to be just this exact tiny little experience. It can be this experience and the field in which it's arising, it's manifesting, to use Margaret's word. So this fourth foundation, in my experience, really starts to give a sense of, I'll be careful with this word, but I, I will say it, a sense of mastery of our mind and body. You're not really the master of your mind and body, <laughs> or the mistress, or whatever. Um, it's not totally in our control. I think we learn that through practice. But there can be a sense that we're not going to get knocked over by the stuff that's coming in and out. Um, we have some sense of this is coming about because of causes and conditions. I have some degree of, you know, I, I can't control the river, but I have an oar in my boat. That's the feeling. I have a paddle for my kayak, and, you know, I still have to watch the rapids, and I'm still going to not go straight into the hole in the middle of the river and those things. But um, I can, you know, I have some degree of balance. And it's, it comes about through this kind of awareness practice, just knowing, knowing and noticing what we're doing. And this plays into, uh, this is the flow into the last path factor of concentration, which is where we take the mastery of the mind. We, you know, what if you did understand how things come about in your mind? Really, the fruition of wise effort is knowing all these things. What would I do with that? You know, is it useful? What's the? What can we do with that information? And the the last step of the path of, is that you cultivate a very very stable still mind, because that's what has the power to have the insight to free your mind. The freedom comes, you know, when you can see clearly enough to understand the cause of suffering and how it's coming about and to let it go. So all of this is training in the establishment of a mind that's generally aware and knows what's going on, knows how things are coming about, and then in that last step we're going to use it to its best possible purpose. But for now, cultivation of the, of the mindfulness. Okay. So, your turn once again. Oh, we have a question. Yes. I have a question. <clears throat> I recently had an interaction with a friend. Okay. That um, we weren't mindful. <laughs> and so, subsequently realized that this whole thing about where things come from, fear and so on, came into our consciousness, but then everything rolled into all the past. And you're saying this isn't the past. So if we had both been mindful in this thing, then we we, we could have said there's fear or anxiety or something. Yeah, it's just present in that moment, right? This. Yeah. We have to go through all that. And then my father said this, and this is why I'm sensitive in these areas of the history. Yeah, well, I, uh, I'm I'm really glad you brought that up, actually, because I don't want to sound like that is never a fruitful exploration. If you're in psychotherapy or if you're a therapist, and this is this can be helpful, um, 
but it's not what the sutta on the establishment of mindfulness is talking about. Um, yeah, I think that's a useful distinction. So I'm not at all discounting or dismantling or um, the value of that sometimes. Um, but yeah, and I'm I'm also glad you related this because you saw that it's, you know, you can do that, but was it useful? Did you end up with wisdom? Did you end up with, I mean, maybe you get some understanding about the past, but yeah. But those these kinds of personal insights mm-hmm. that we have through this kind of investigation, again, they can be useful. They can bring a certain amount of peace. But those are not the insights that the Buddha was pointing us toward. Ultimately, mm-hmm. maybe useful, but not not completely what he was pointing toward. I guess I would say if you stay at that level, you'll get a certain amount of usefulness, but you won't you won't get the full Monty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what did the beginning of this say? The surmounting of sorrow and lamentation. The attainment of the true way and the establishment, you know, the realization of Nibbana, that requires um, a really deep present moment experience, yeah. Okay, so let's, um, let's talk again in small groups. Um, yeah, we have, we have time. So maybe find a different set of three people. At least one of the people is different in your new set of three, and then I'll um, uh, we'll get a chance to reflect a little bit on this fourth foundation. Okay, so the first question, we have one question about the hindrances and one question about the factors of awakening. So if you're not excited about the hindrance question, you can look forward to the next one. Um, but the first question is, consider your most common hindrance. And so I will name them in just a moment. And the question is, can you describe a time when mindfulness prevented this hindrance from arising or contributed to its disappearance? Um, so here are the five hindrances. It says, pick your most common one. Or pick the one that you have right now. That's another one you could do. So the hindrances are sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, (laughs) restlessness and remorse, or doubt. Those are the five. Mm. So pick one of those that you're familiar with in some way. Sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, and doubt. And describe a time when mindfulness prevented it from arising or contributed to its disappearance. And, you know, really focus on the conditions, not so much the story about what was happening at that time. Whoever thinks of the, their story first can start. Yeah, it's usually lively talking about the hindrances. <laughs> so the, the second question about the um, factors of awakening, and again, I'll actually in this one, I'm going to tell you which factor to look at. Um, the second awakening factor is the factor of investigation, which is of being curious about experience and uh, observing it with some degree of wisdom. Um, yeah, let's just go with being curious and a willingness to feel and observe it. That's a good enough quality for investigation. So this is an awakening factor, and we've all experienced it because it's actually something that follows pretty naturally from mindfulness, is to be curious and willing to experience our experience. This is, uh, yeah, this is, that's why the investigation follows right after the 
mindfulness factor of awakening. Or sorry, the awakening factor of mindfulness. So, regarding this factor of investigation, the question is, what helps bring about this curiosity and what keeps it going? So regarding being curious about your experience and interested in what's going on in your life, what is it that helps bring that about and what keeps it going for you? And you can just um, name things within your group. You don't, uh, maybe just name one thing at a time and together you'll build up a set of qualities that are supportive of this factor of awakening and also help maintain it. Yes, I'm activating my own factor of investigation, and I would be curious <laughs> to know uh, anything that emerged in terms of wisdom about the five hindrances or this factor of investigation. What did you find that was interesting or surprising or useful? Or if you have any questions. Yeah, Roman. Um, right at the end, I was kind of wondering about, when we were talking about, I suppose it depends on how you set up the definitions, like curiosity versus investigation. And is one maybe like a mindset that like leads to the factor, or is like one an umbrella that contains the other? And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about differences or like overlap between those two yeah it's hard to define these factors of awakening briefly so I um, settled on the curiosity element but it's it's kind of just one aspect of, of investigation um, and I guess it's a contributing factor if you're curious then you'll be interested in investigating but that that quality of mind I guess I'm not clear on the question. Are you asking what, whether a, maybe you could ask again. Um, I think I was viewing or assuming that curiosity is a mindset that lends itself to the factor of investigation. And do you think that's an appropriate way of viewing it? Yeah, it's certainly one of the, um, one of the conditions that will be there when investigation is present. Investigation as an awakening factor includes more than just curiosity, but that would be one element of it. Interest, yeah. Yeah. Well, when I think about curiosity, it's a very positive thing. You know, like you're curious about that plant or whatever. And I was surprised in our discussion to realize that one thing that helps bring curiosity for me is aversion to suffering. Ah. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to suffer, so you're curious about... Yeah. So it had not a negative flavor, but it wasn't just that scientific curiosity that arose all by itself. There was a reason. Oh, there's always a reason. <laughs> That's what the fourth foundation starts teaching us, is that everything is conditioned in a sense. Yeah, and, you know, um, you said, I think, aversion to suffering. Um, wanting to not, wanting to not yeah. suffer, and a motivation not to suffer. So, actually, aversion to suffering is definitely kind of 
has this negative flavor to it. It's, 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 it goes too far. You don't have to have aversion to it. But I would point out that the uh, desire not to suffer is, is compassion, <laughs> and that's actually a very positive and even pleasant uh, mm-hmm. state of mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, something that came up for me was the attachment that I have to hindrances sometimes. Yeah, like, that's very know. astute. <laughs> yeah. Even though doubt is really unpleasant, I've had moments where I know that I'm in, I'm having doubt, but for some reason I still feel like attached to it, like mm-hmm. I want to make it true, even though I know it's not. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very important thing to notice. We we are attached to our hindrances, not because they benefit us, but because they're familiar. Feels like you, so it's um, maybe more comfortable than uh, the, its its opposite, which would be faith. Mm-hmm. You may not see yourself, it may not fit your self identity as well. This is a way that we get hooked in. You know, this is why they're so subtle. A lot of people are attached to their ill will. You know, they they like that in some way about themselves, and the idea of actually being soft and kind and open and pleasant—they're not sure they want that. <laughs> of course, it feels better. We know that, but it's you know, there's something. Um, if this is really worth looking at, our, our fear of being truly wholesome and skillful in our action. But don't think about it in the terms of the long past. <laughs> Look at it in the moment, you know, when you're having that moment. And you you can propose to your mind, could I be kind instead of have ill will? And the mindset, and you feel a flash of what? Fear. <laughs> I'm afraid if I let go of this anger, the whole world's going to overwhelm me, or whatever it is. But you can feel that in the moment. That's the only way that you'll actually start to let go of it, is if you can feel in that moment. And there's a reason why these things are asking us to look right now what's going on, because the thing from the past is already, it's already, it's just an idea, you know. It's something that, uh, it's not really liberating, actually, to, to have that story. You have to see it right now and feel what that feels like. I did notice um, when people were talking about their experience of hindrances arising, um, how they managed them also involved projections into the future. All this and this, and I don't want that. Yeah, that's fair enough investigate. Yeah, you can do that too. Um, the Buddha encouraged us to, to be aware of what the consequences of our actions would be. That's another way that mindfulness isn't only about the present moment. But the um, so there's different levels that we can manage things at. You know, in the end, projections about what we think the future will be like are also not totally liberating. But they, if they change our behavior in the present moment, they do have an effect. Yeah. Yeah, it's useful to consider the consequences. You know, if I'm angry, I'll probably ruin this relationship, and I didn't want that. So I'll restrain myself somehow. It's tricky working with the mind. You know, there isn't just one way. I can't give you a formula. 
but I can point toward the ways that are the most skillful, and among all the skillful ways, some of them are more liberating than others, and I can point toward those. That's what I'm, I hope is coming out of this. There's a, lot, a wide range, and we choose the one that we can do in the moment. That's what I try to do. I choose among all of, there's a, this many total. At this moment, I'm capable of this many of them, and among those, I'm going to choose the one that's the most liberating. That's the best I can do. Okay, well, I hope that this um, kind of digging into what the discourse on the establishment of mindfulness actually says has given you maybe a little bit broader sense. If, and we're all mindfulness practitioners in some way or other, but I hope that something, at least something you learned today was new or a new tool or a new way of thinking about it that can maybe enliven your mindfulness practice a little bit. I know you already have a mindfulness practice, but if you can just do something this month that's a little bit uh, new or different or kind of uh, spicier than what you were doing, uh, it might enliven it a little bit and bring some new dimension to uh, to your mindfulness practice. So I think I think that would be my hope for all of us. Um, so one, uh, the, you'll meet with your mentor sometime this month. Our next and last Sunday session, we're already down to the last Sunday session, is going to be May 12th on Wise Concentration. But that's not the last session ever, because there's this day long that you just got in the in your email a few days ago, a registration form uh, for Saturday, June 27th, at Insight Retreat Center, which is in Scotts Valley. It's pretty close to here, from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. And I do encourage you to sign up. If you didn't get the email, uh, let me know, and I'll forward it to you. But you should have gotten it along with the other emails you're getting about this course. Um, some of you have asked what it might, what you're going to do on that day, because uh, there's you know no more path factors. But it's a uh, you're done with the path at that point. We're all arahants. So, um, but it's it's a nice day in that it's definitely not just sitting all day, um, and it's not even uh, this. Well, it's kind of like this kind of thing all day, but it's there will be a few teachers and there will be people from this program, if any of you go, and also the people who are doing this in Redwood City up in Gill's group. And there's also a group in Modesto that's been doing it, and so they're going to come. And so it's gonna you'll see like new people that you haven't met who have been doing this same program all this time. So it's kind of fun in that sense. And it'll be basically a review. It has two purposes. One is a kind of a review and summation, because it's a lot that you've had over all this time. And I know you're reflecting as it's gone along, but it's kind of nice. There'll be like summary teachings and some sense of how you can go forward now that you don't have a monthly Sunday session to orient around. There'll be an encouragement to, you know, maybe find a buddy or a friend to continue on with. And, uh, and some, you know, some teachings about, you know, what how practice can continue to evolve, like maybe going on retreats, maybe doing some more study, uh, you know, other ideas about that. And then, though really, if you like this kind of thing, um, you're going to graduate and you get a little, um, there's, a, there's a little ritual. <laughs> so it's kind of, it's meaningful. I think it's very fun. It's always been a very sweet day. Uh, they're going to cook lunch for you, so you'll get a nice lunch. 
And it's just nice. It's a nice day of appreciating because you've done a lot of hard work for eight months. You still have two more things to go, but um, it's not a small thing to have gotten through this program and to have really engaged. And it's a celebration of your good practice. So all of that will be there. I hope that gives some better sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any last things for today? Yeah. I'm still stuck on factor three. That's how far I got. (laughs) Factor three? Why speech? Yes. Yes. And so my question is, when are we teaching this class again in Santa Cruz? (laughs) I see. We've done it every year for the last three years. Um, Uh uh, It may happen next year, but I'm not sure. We're not hasn't been decided yet, but it will, I do know that it will happen again in Redwood City next year. Um, They've been doing it there for, I think, six, maybe six or seven, maybe seven years now. Um, And it's, I know it's going to happen again there. They've already set the dates because they have kind of a more complicated calendar and they had to set them already. So at the very least, even if it's not offered here, you can always join that group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm voting for Okay. It's true. You know, people, there, there, are, there are people in this room who have done this more than once. And it's, uh, I think I'm one of them. Because <laughs> uh, you don't really finish the path in eight months, right? So, you know, we can keep doing it, even if you do exactly the same material, because I guarantee you they're sending you the same essays, the same reflections, but they're different. They're going to be different if you do them next year. So you can always come and do it again.